If you had one shot, one opportunity, seize everything you ever wanted, one moment, did you capture? Happy Tuesday and welcome to Not Boring. Yes, you heard that right. Happy Tuesday. So yesterday was a holiday here in the U.S., Martin Luther King Jr. Day. So we're coming to you on a rare Tuesday. We'll be back to normal next week. Now, I've been trying to take the holidays off. I really have, but I just couldn't not do this one. Hopefully, this is the last time we have such a general, non-useful debate around Web3. I appreciate the prof for laying out all the opposition's points so we can knock them down and move on. Before we do, though, a word from our sponsor, Masterworks. So if your portfolio is anything like mine, then you've got a lot of exposure to tech companies and crypto. But sadly, over one-third of the stocks in the NASDAQ are down 50% from their 52-week highs, and my crypto is taking a little breather, too. So tech investors are down bad, to say the least. Just remember, you can't control the markets, but you can control your risk. So how do you mitigate risk? I make sure to diversify my portfolio with alternative assets, including art. And I'm not the only one fighting for our investments. According to Citi, art's gaining a lot of traction as an investment given its rate of appreciation and lack of correlation with other asset classes. After all, why would you diversify with gold when you could diversify with Banksy? It seems like a no-brainer. So if you want to join the art investing movement with me, you can log on to a spanking new fresh domain at masterworks.art slash not boring. That's masterworks.art slash not boring. I'll see y'all there. And see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Now let's get to it. The Web3 debate. On Friday, everybody's favorite professor sent out a piece titled simply Web3. I didn't receive it. I don't subscribe. But my dad forwarded it to me with an uh-oh. Uh-oh is right. I should have been nervous about opening it. I'm very long crypto but I wasn't even a little bit nervous because I had no doubt what side the prof would be on and what kind of piece he was going to write. And that's exactly the piece he wrote. Now, I don't want this to be a dunk on the prof because he's always wrong piece. My friend and party round CEO, Jordy Hayes, proclaimed that shitting on Galloway is played out, and I tend to agree. I didn't even want to respond. But then I noticed that he misquoted me and misrepresented things I was involved in, and then I looked a little deeper and found errors and misdirections galore. The professor's piece was a lazy regurgitation of other people's arguments with some key inaccuracies, intentional or accidental. Hundreds of thousands of people read, listen to, and even pay to learn from him, and normally it's not my problem. But if he's going to accidentally pull me into this debate anyway, then let's debate. Welcome to Debate Club. At the risk of making myself seem unimaginably cool, I debated competitively in high school and college and actually just started a debate club in NYC when COVID hit. In parliamentary debate, the kind we did at debate club, there are two teams, the proposition and the opposition, who debate a resolution. The resolution might be something like, general AI should have fundamental rights. The proposition defends the resolution, and the opposition tries to poke holes in it. The two sides go back and forth making arguments, concluding in a rebuttal from each team summarizing the debate, reiterating their points, and trying to make clear why their side won. If you want to read the rules, I wrote up a stripped-down version for Debate Club, and I linked to them in the post at notboring.co. Now, there are a few things that you want to do to win a debate. The most obvious is that you want to find the most and best evidence in favor of your side. In the course of your research, you'll also find evidence that contradicts your side. 
be aware of this evidence in case you need to defend against it. But by all means, don't bring it up unless, of course, you're playing an advanced game and want to say things like, I expect that our opponents will tell you that XYZ, they're wrong because ABC. Less scrupulous debaters might even bend or make things up. Remember, the point in a debate is to win, not to get to the truth. Now, that's debate 101 type stuff. And then there's the more advanced shit. Instead of fighting the battle you were assigned, you start a new battle about whatever serves your agenda. An experienced debater will spend a good chunk of her time setting the definitions. Take our general AI debate. What is general AI? The proposition might define general AI as, quote, a being with human-like intelligence and emotions indistinguishable from a human in all but origin. If the opposition lets that definition slide, they've probably already lost the debate. More likely, they'll come back and say that the definition is wrong and that experts agree that, quote, artificial general intelligence is the hypothetical ability of an intelligent agent to understand or learn any intellectual task that a human being can. The proposition might come back and call the opposition out for using the Wikipedia definition, reiterate their own, and argue as if their own definition is true. The outcome of the debate between experienced debaters often comes down to whose definition stands. If general AI is indistinguishable from a human, of course it should have fundamental rights. And let's not even get started on the definition of fundamental rights. But if general AI is just a hypothetical ability to understand or learn intellectual tasks, it should probably have rights more similar to computers than humans. Really, if you win the definition battle, the actual points you make don't matter as much. All to say, debate is a really fun intellectual battle if you're a nerd like me, but it's not good for finding the truth, and it's not a particularly useful way to approach real-world conversations. Unfortunately, over the past few weeks, a debate is exactly what the Web3 discourse has turned into. The Web3 discourse, more debate than dialogue. Probably since the day Satoshi dropped that white paper in 2008, there have been people who are for crypto and those who are against it. Among those who are for it, warring factions fight for the supremacy of their coin and chain of choice. The infighting is silly, counterproductive, and never-ending. Bitcoin versus Ethereum, Ethereum versus all other smart contract L1s, Arbitrum versus Optimism, Bitcoin versus the world. As I've written before, I'm a maximalist minimalist. The X fighting is constant too, but the angle of attack shifts and evolves. First, the anti-argument was that crypto was just used by criminals. Then it was that it's bad for the environment. When one criticism is sufficiently disproven, critics move on to the next. Today, the argument seems to be that Web3, inclusive of traditional crypto and things like dApps, NFTs, social tokens, and DeFi, is a construct made up by VCs and isn't as decentralized as you think it is. Whatever the raison du jour, people rarely change sides or change their mind. I would imagine you could administer a personality test that had nothing to do with crypto, like the Big Five personality test, and learn with a high degree of accuracy who is on which side. You could do the same thing by looking at someone's 50 most recent tweets on other technologies or new things. And if the people who dislike Elvis and rock and roll in the 1950s were part of the debate today, chances are they'd be anti-crypto. So really what's happening is that people pick their sides in advance and then try to use whatever evidence they can to make their case instead of taking in the evidence and then making up their mind. In that sense, the Web3 discourse is more debate than dialogue. If we look at it as a parliamentary debate, the resolution of this particular one would be something like Web3 is good. In the opposition's opening speech, Jack Dorsey, ex-Twitter and current Block CEO and Bitcoin maximalist, set the stage for this particular debate in December when he tweeted, 
you don't own Web3. The VCs and their LPs do. It will never escape their incentives. It's ultimately a centralized entity with a different label. Know what you're getting into. He pushed the idea that VCs own Web3, so it's centralized into the spotlight. In its second speech, Signal CEO Moxie Marlinspike added some texture to the debate when he wrote his very thoughtful piece, My First Impressions of Web3, earlier this month. His biggest contribution to the opposition was this idea that Web3 actually relies on a lot more centralized technology than your opponents would have you believe. Now that you've been trained in the subtlety of debate, you should be able to see what's going on here. Jack and Moxie shifted the battleground to a debate over degrees of centralization. They're trying to win the definition battle. Instead of a more vague Web3 is good, they tighten the focus to a more easily winnable Web3 is more centralized than it appears from the outside, which is bad. Like experienced debaters, Moxie and Jack shifted the battleground with subtlety intact. And then Professor Scott Galloway crashed through the wall like the Kool-Aid man. Uninvited, Galloway joined the debate and exposed the side's tricks in a ham-handed rebuttal for the opposition. Prof G enters the Web3 debate. Let me flash back for a minute. When I debated in high school, sometimes we'd get randomly assigned teams of three. If you got a team with two strong debaters and one weak one, ideally, you'd go strong, weak, strong for the course of your three speeches. The strong leadoff debater could set the tone, the weaker one would stumble a little in the middle, and then the other strong debater could come in and clean up the mess with a powerful rebuttal. Sometimes, though, the weaker debater would ask to do the rebuttal, and you didn't have the heart to tell them no, so you'd let them go last. And it was a train wreck. The rebuttal is the closing argument. It's often make or break. In the rebuttal, a debater sums up his or her team's points, once again tears down the opposing team's points, and then tries to tie a compelling bow on the whole thing. No new information is allowed in a rebuttal. It's just a summary of what's been said. The best you can do is use more colorful and compelling language on top of the existing points and structure everything in a way that makes your team look good. Now, it should be fairly easy. There are no new points to make. But in the hands of a weak or inexperienced debater, the rebuttal can be a disaster. When that happens, the problem is often that the two stronger debaters were the ones who came up with most of the arguments and figured out how they fit together into a larger narrative. They felt the arguments in their bones. They rocked them on a deeper level, and they actually understood what they were trying to say. But they needed to rely on the weaker debater to deliver those points. Often, even if the weaker debater mostly made the right points, there was just something in the delivery and the word choices and the flow and the way that they leaned on their notes and looked at their partners that made it clear that it wasn't their argument, that they didn't actually know what they were talking about. That's what it felt like reading the prof's rant against Web3. Take this paragraph, a short, simple one that exposes so much of his shtick. He wrote, The infrastructure of Web3 is predicated on the existence of middlemen. Many of the most popular, quote, decentralized apps rely on an application called Infura that provides, quote, ETH nodes as a service. There are many more of these services, such as Alchemy, quote, powering blockchain developers globally, and Morales, quote, build, host, and scale killer dApps. The truth is, people don't want to run their own servers, and they don't want to have to write code every time they buy a loaf of bread, so, quote, centralized services will inevitably arise to make Web3 actually work for regular people. Whoa, you might think reading this. The prof is wicked smart. He knows about Web3 infrastructure. He must know his stuff. I can trust everything else he's saying. Truth is, it's a bad copy-paste reword job from Moxie's piece. While he did link to the piece, he underlined people don't want to run their own servers and link to it there, he didn't mention Moxie's name anywhere in the piece of the paragraph. That might be forgiven as a style thing. Personally, I would have led with something like, quote, as Signal CEO Moxie Marlinspike pointed out, 
less people thought I was trying to pass his ideas off as my own, but that's just me. But there are a couple of other things hidden in there that show the prof was just regurgitating instead of understanding. First, the only original idea in the paragraph that people don't want to have to write code every time they buy a loaf of bread is a straw man. Of course it would be bad if people had to write code to buy bread, but that doesn't matter because no one in the world is suggesting that people would need to write a single line of code to buy anything. That's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. Second, the prof fails to point out that A16Z led Alchemy Series C in October at a $3.5 billion valuation. He takes every opportunity to come at A16Z throughout, including its investments in Coinbase and OpenSea, but he misses this layup. If I were his debate partner, I would have steam coming out of my ears. Anyway, that's just one paragraph in a larger debate. If you're keeping score at home, Jack delivered the first speech for Web3's opposition and tried to set the definitions to make the debate about BC ownership in Web3. He shook things up. It was effective. Moxie delivered the second speech, handling some of the proposition's claims and adding a new point for the opposition, that the tech stack was more centralized than people realized too. Also well done. Then the prof stepped up to deliver the rebuttal for the opposition and woof. Now, again, I think that the Web3 debate is kind of dumb, that there are good and bad pieces and good and bad actors, that some things should be centralized and others should be decentralized, that nothing is all good or all bad. And for a more nuanced synthesis of the proposition and opposition, you can check out my friend Jorah's post, Unpacking the Web3 Sausage, which I linked in the piece. Now, for me, I prefer a more constructive conversation. Everything, everywhere, always is about trade-offs. Web3 is no different. I'd prefer a more constructive conversation that starts there. The debate is so violent. But like I said, I don't like when me and my friends are misrepresented. So I decided to dust off the old debate pants and enter the fray to deliver the rebuttal for the proposition, Web3 is good. My rebuttal for the proposition in the Web3 debate. And I'm going to switch to my debate voice. This isn't really me, but, you know, stick with me. Ladies and gentlemen, judges, teammates, and of course, esteemed opponents. Thank you for being here this morning for this riveting debate. Because we've wandered a little off course, I'd like to remind everyone what we're debating. Read the resolution right from the paper to make sure I don't miss anything. Web3 is good. Now, the opposition has tried everything to make this entire debate about centralization versus decentralization. If there's centralization anywhere, on the cap table or in the tech stack or in the platforms consumers choose to use, they'd have you believe then Web3 is bad. And they've shown that there is centralization in places. Of course there is. You'll hear no argument here. But that doesn't mean the opposition is one, because that's not what this debate is about. Arguments around specific attributes of Web3 or of any network, like centralization or the existence of bad actors, are besides the point, like arguing that the internet is bad because Facebook or 4chan exist. We agree openly that there are bad actors and scams and frauds and that a lot of tokens sit in the wallets of a few people. We agree that there's a lot more work to be done to build a truly decentralized internet for those who want it, and vehemently agree that not everybody will. We'd go even further than our opponents and say that a fully decentralized future is impossible. Some people will always prefer centralized services for everything. Many more will prefer fully decentralized services for some things and centralized ones for others. But this debate is not about centralization versus decentralization. It's about choice. This debate is about whether or not Web3, an internet owned by the users and builders orchestrated with tokens, is net good or net bad for humanity, not just as it stands today in its earliest form, but in the promise it holds. By the way, do you see what I did there? Try to redefine the terms. Back to it. 
It's about whether the world will be better if entrepreneurs have Web3 tools at their disposal or not. Again, it's about choice. Choice for builders and choice for users. Some people will want centralized services. Some will want fully decentralized ones. Many will choose points on the spectrum in between that work for them at different times and for different things. We're arguing that they should have that choice. And we're arguing that Web3 gives them that choice. But we'll get there. First, allow me to try to dismantle the opposition's arguments as summarized in Professor Galloway's rebuttal. I'll show you why they're irrelevant, incorrect, misleading, or just plain wrong. Importantly, I'll show that when the evidence didn't quite fit, he bent the truth to make it fit. This web of lies underpins what the prof tries to pass off as an argument. If you weren't able to follow it, I understand. I'll try to summarize. It goes something like this. The elites are using the promise of decentralization to centralize control and achieve unimaginable riches. Centralization is evident in NFT and Bitcoin ownership, a Forbes list of 12, count them 12 crypto billionaires, would-be monopolies like Coinbase and OpenSea, and the infrastructure itself. There's crime. DAOs aren't that centralized because Constitution DAO wasn't and because they elect representatives. And hey, why do we need new internet-native structures when we have public companies anyway? Also, centralization is pretty good because of the Web Space Telescope. And Web3 tools like NFTs and DAOs have potential, but like not that much potential, and regulators need to stop the innovators. Also, A16Z invested in centralized companies. Meet the new boss. He's your old boss. Plus, Elon's on my side and Gary Gensler better do something. Anyway, Silicon Valley is trying to take over the media, the economy, and the military to achieve a complete tyranny, and they do not want Web3 to be regulated. Web3 is the same thing as Web 2.0 and Facebook and Google have too much control. Ask someone with teen girls if that's good. So I'm exaggerating the argument a little bit there, but not really. Go back and read the piece. That's the flow. It may not be yoga babble, but it's something babble. But an incoherent argument should draw sympathy, not ire. What got my blood up were four specific misdirections, two of which I was involved in personally, a third of which I was part of publicly disproving, and a fourth of which is just plain numbers. You'll see that without those, the prof's argument makes even less sense. Misdirection number one. Debate is so often a battle of definitions, so my ears perked up when the prof used a modified version of my definition of Web3 and called it yoga babble. He said, what's Web3? It's a hazy, vague term describing a crypto-powered internet and a font of yoga babble. Its promoters would say something akin to, Web3 is a decentralized version of the internet where platforms and apps are built and owned by users. Now, Yoga Babble is one of the prof's favorite words. He actually repeated it later in the piece, arguing that decentralization has, quote, created a Coachella for fraud where anonymity, Yoga Babble, and complexity protect the fraudsters from oversight or accountability. I'm not offended by the characterization. I don't think mine is a perfect definition by any stretch. What I am a little offended by is that the prof tweaked my words to fit his core argument that Web3 isn't actually as decentralized as it seems. Specifically, he added the word decentralized to the definition. The actual definition I use in the piece that he linked to is, quote, Web3 is the internet owned by the builders and users orchestrated with tokens. I intentionally didn't use the word decentralized because I don't think decentralization is actually the key feature. But it does make a good straw man. And so the prof threw it in there. To be charitable, it's a subtle difference, and decentralization was discussed in the piece that he referenced, but ultimately, that's not the definition I used. He attempted to reframe what I said to fit his argument, he got caught, and you can throw out that attempt. Misdirection number two. 
the second misdirection in straight numbers. Galloway uses a chart to show that, quote, the advertised decentralization of power out of the hands of a few has, in fact, been a re-centralization of power into the hands of fewer. The chart on the right in the graphic that he showed represents BitInfo data that shows that 2% of accounts own 95% of Bitcoin, meaning that, quote, if it were a country, Bitcoin would have the greatest inequality in the world. Of course, nowhere in the prop's argument does he mention that his former enemy now ally, Jack, and his company Block are among the world's biggest Bitcoin holders and are in that 2%. There's also a big hole in that analysis, though, which Glassnode uncovered last February. The 2% includes wallets for exchanges like Coinbase, whose wallets hold Bitcoin for millions of people. Adjusting for that, the top two own 71.5% of Bitcoin. That Glassnode article is not obscure. It's the fourth thing that comes up when you Google Bitcoin concentration. Now, we agree that 71.5% is still a heavy concentration. Not as sensational as 95%, but it has the benefit of being accurate to the extent that that matters to our opponent. We agree that we would like to see ownership more evenly distributed, but we disagree that it's relevant to the professor's argument, especially since to the prof's teammate, Jack, Web3 and Bitcoin are very different. It's another small thing, but I hope you're picking up a pattern of the prof disregarding any evidence that it's inconvenient to his case. Misdirection number three. Next, the prof argued that DAOs are often not decentralized by using the example of Constitution DAO, which I was involved in. Specifically, he wrote, Constitution DAO, which made news when it lost out in a $43 million bidding war for an original copy of the U.S. Constitution, hadn't even established a governance model before it shut down because the founders hadn't figured out how to prevent a few large holders or whales from taking control. He linked to a conversation that core team member Jonah Ehrlich had with the Verge's Nile Patel. Turns out, what the prof said is not really what Jonah said. I'm going to give the full section of the conversation here to show how the prof picked and chose. So here's the question from the Verge. When someone buys token named People or WTP, do they get one vote per token? Jonah. We had not figured out the governance model. In the rush to be able to buy this document, there were a lot of details that, were going, that we were going to figure out after we had won. We were actually discussing different governance models had we won. One of the big concerns is that some of the large holders in the crypto world, we call these whales, would have outsized control over what happens with the documents. Our big message is, this is a movement for the people. This is a people's document, so we want to have it controlled by the people. We were looking at different mechanisms. We were looking at the direct democracy voting, one token, one vote. We were also looking at one vote per wallet, which isn't exactly a proxy for one person, but it's pretty close. And we are looking at quadratic voting, which is another mechanism in which voting power is actually diminished when a person has more tokens. You don't have 100 extra votes for 100 extra tokens, but rather a smaller amount of votes as that number of tokens increases. The Verge. When you say DAO is speedrunning the history of organizational structure, you're describing speedrunning the history of democracy, setting up a voting system and figuring out how those votes will be representative of a group of people. However, a group of people has to make those decisions, not exactly democratic. How is that working for Constitution DAO? Jonah, there's a good concept called progressive decentralization. It's really hard to actually start something fully decentralized, so you have to start out with an initial team that builds something, who then brings it to decentralization. Our plan with Constitution DAO was that once we won this auction, we're going as fast as we can to become fully decentralized to the greatest extent possible. End. So only in the least charitable interpretation could you read the above as hadn't established a governance model because they couldn't figure out how to stop whales from taking over. In fact, Jonah mentioned whales in response to Patel's question about whether people would get one vote per token, 
not as a reason that there wasn't a governance model in place. The truth is the opposite of the point that the prof made. The founders knew exactly how to stop whales from taking over. Don't give one vote per token. As Jonah laid out, the real story was, A, there was less than a week from idea to auction. The team chose to tackle things that weren't mission critical, like a governance model in the case of a win, until we actually won. The potential governance options were known, and Jonah listed a few. That was not the bottleneck. And the plan all along, as it should be for 99.9% .9 of DAOs, was to progressively decentralize, which is accepted best practice. Now, that's not me leaning on memory and first-hand experience. That's exactly what Jonah said in the conversation that the prof referenced. The prof just chose to leave out anything that didn't fit his point. That a six-day-old project had not yet decentralized is a weak and amateur indictment of the concept of DAOs as a whole. Indeed, it seems the prof's arguments against DAOs more broadly are based on a very basic and inaccurate model of governance in which maximum decentralization is the goal and every decision should be one person, one vote. That does not reflect the reality on the ground. And finally, there's misdirection number four. Finally, my opponent argued that the decentralization narrative, quote, is a false god evangelized by high priests who pass collection plates the size of Mars and admonish regulation as heresy. The language is fun and colorful. The point is simply untrue. Outside of a handful of Bitcoin maximalists who tend to hate on Web3 anyway, there's not a single serious person in Web3 or crypto or whatever you want to call it who doesn't believe that it should be regulated, let alone who believes that regulation is heresy. Every founder and investor I've ever spoken to on the topic wants regulation in the US to come sooner so they can stop building and investing in ambiguity. In fact, when A16Z's Chris Dixon and I wrote about the future of crypto and The Economist, we ended the piece with a call for sensible regulation of the industry in America and beyond. We said, in the coming year, more leaders in America and in other democracies will realize the need for sensible regulation that encourages responsible innovation while also allowing entrepreneurs to build the next generation of the internet. A16Z, where I'm an advisor in which the prof decided to single out with its own section, has a section on its website dedicated to Web3 policy, which states, we are radically optimistic about the potential of Web3 to restore trust in institutions and expand access to opportunity. But realizing the potential depends on smart policy. Good regulation establishes a framework for how innovation can benefit society while managing the real risks that might otherwise harm consumers. No one is admonishing regulation as heresy. Quite the opposite. I suggest that the prof take a glimpse of the firm's recommendations for policymakers, which include, I don't know, one, two, three, four, I think four or five of the rules that they propose all have to do with regulating crypto or peruse its documents such as U.S. policy agenda, global policy agenda, or legal framework for DAOs. These are the facts, but the facts might get in the way of the professor's good story. Bring the truth to light and all he's left with are, as Jack would say, words. Of course, there are more examples of little things that betray a lack of understanding or a lack of a desire to understand. He mentions A16Z's investment in the centralized exchange Coinbase, but not its investment in the decentralized exchange Uniswap. He points to data showing that blockchain tokens launched recently have more insider ownership share at launch without acknowledging that most of those projects were founded and funded during crypto winter and needed VC funding to survive. No doubt taking a cue from Moxie, he also used OpenSea as an example of Web3 centralization. He overplayed his hand without understanding the facts. He said, the potential to establish monopoly power to own the rails, i.e. decentralized, is increasingly what VCs fund, and that's the true protocol for Web3. 
OpenSea, the world's largest NFT marketplace, is eerily similar to any other exchange platform. In return for making transactions easier and modestly safer, the company takes a 2.5% cut of every transaction. Ironically, four days before the Prof publishes piece, an NFT platform called LooksRare launched. NFT platforms launched all the time. What made this one particularly relevant is how it bootstrapped initial demand. LooksRare airdropped 12% of its total Looks token supply on users based largely on how much volume they transacted on OpenSea between June and December 2021. The data was easy for them to access. It was all publicly available on the Ethereum blockchain. LooksRare was able to attract OpenSea's biggest customers by giving the biggest rewards to those people who'd spent the most on OpenSea. They were also able to induce those customers to perform specific activities on LooksRare to unlock those tokens. I wasn't able to claim my 200 looks until I listed an NFT for sale on the platform. I've actually never even listed an NFT on OpenSea, but I have listed one on LooksRare now. So is it working? According to this Dune dashboard from Hildabi, yes, and it shows that it's early and there's a lot of buzz around looks, but it's a good start. LooksRare is doing two to three times the daily volume of OpenSea, although OpenSea is still smoking LooksRare in terms of daily users and daily transactions. As a few people have pointed out, there's some wash trading and marketplace mining at play here, which accounts for the discrepancy, but it's a good start for a week and shows one angle of attack to knock off centralized services with decentralized one. Now, it's up to LooksRare to build on the early momentum and retain and grow its user base. To do that, it architected the platform to lower gas fees, rewards users for buying and selling NFTs, charges lower trading fees, and shares 100% of fees with Looks holders who've staked their tokens. It's hard to look at that and call OpenSea a monopoly. That is, of course, if you're looking and if you're trying to find the truth instead of trying to win the debate. In fact, that's the point that Jack Moxie and certainly Professor Galloway missed. It's not about when, whether any particular platform is centralized or who owns how much of what. It's about the fact that the data is open, that builders and users have choice, and that they'll choose the platforms that extract less and give them more ownership. In Web3, if a platform misleads its users, those users can choose to take their data and money to another platform. It also highlights why the whole debate is practically meaningless. While we exchanged words, a few entrepreneurs opened up their laptops, built something better, and made the case for Web3 better than I ever could. I hope we can end this silly debate now and engage in more nuanced, thoughtful conversation like the one prompted by Moxie's piece instead of loud and inaccurate yelling like the profs. Or just get out of the way. Web3 isn't all good or all bad, but we believe it's net good, it's happening either way, and it deserves more thoughtful and honest critiques, and yes, regulation, in order to reach its full potential. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I rest my case. Life is so rich. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening, and I will see you on next Monday. Have a great week. Just let it slip. Yo.